Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassink, and I'm the medical director for the Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight at the American Academy of Pediatrics. In this conversation, I am joined by Dr. Joseph Skelton for a discussion on patient retention strategies for obesity care. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today, I'm very happy to renew a conversation with an old friend, Dr. Joey Skelton, who's a professor of pediatrics and of epidemiology and prevention at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Joey has had a, a lifelong professional interest in children with obesity. He serves as a director of the Brenner Families and Training Program, which is an interdisciplinary pediatric obesity treatment prevention research and education program. And he is also an associate director of the program in community engagement. So Joey, just uh, welcome to our podcast. And I'm so excited to have you here to talk about our topic today, which is patient retention. Right, thank you, Sandy. It's great to see you again, and I appreciate you having me. So Joey, um, you know, when I think of patient retention, um, the heartburn I always had when I was seeing patients is you know that you can't help a patient who's not in your office, who's not coming for care. And so, you know, we so much uh, wanna uh, engage with our patients and continue that engagement because we know obesity is a chronic disease. And we know that um, we need longitudinal care and how important that is for treatment, but also for our patients um, for prevention, for what I would call cumulative prevention, that time over time, we're trying to reinforce preventive messages. And when we treat our patients, we're trying to uh, help them move to a healthier lifestyle, and we all know that takes time. So, you know, I certainly feel uh, the crucial nature of the, your, the interest in patient retention and, and making that better, but how did you get interested, or how did you uh, get interested in focusing on patient retention? Yeah, I think that's a great question, um, Sandy. Uh, and, you know, I have, I have two heroes in this field. You're one of them, and, my, and the other is uh, Sarah Barlow. And, it was actually when I was publishing my first outcomes paper on the clinic work that we were doing and was uh, the classic uh, reviewer two syndrome of someone arguing about the dropout rate. And they were absolutely correct. We had an incredibly high dropout rate. And it was Sarah Barlow that said, you know, you need to look at that. She had published a paper, I think about two years before that showing a really high dropout rate in, in the clinic um, when she was in St. Louis. And it, you know, and, and that's what I'd seen, that there was just sort of sporadic reports of what a high dropout rate. And it was us continuing to look at a problem saying, oh, geez, you know, how are we going to how are we going to get across that river and um, became kind of intrigued with that. And what I saw both within what was written clinically, as well as talking to other people that work in this field nationwide, was it was sort of two attitudes. It was either our clinic is defective and it's not meeting the needs of patients, or it was the attitude of the patients are defective. And I didn't really like either. Now that's not saying, um, you know, every patient um, can, and can be kept in treatment, but it's also, and it's not saying that we can't improve the care that we deliver, but I, I thought that was kind of a very superficial approach to the problem. And, and I think you put those problems together and it's obviously there might be, it might not be a problem between the interaction between patient and clinic, um, but it, very likely is. And so I got very intrigued with that because it combined um, a lot of very behaviorally oriented interests that I had, as well as sort of the broader perspective of how do we approach 
weight management in children. So it was really that idea of um, more, we need more people looking in that field, not just doing retrospective reports of our high dropout rates, but really trying to dig down to why. And so that's really what drove me to get into this. So Joey, it sounds like you're, you're really looking at the dynamics of the clinic, the clinic team and the patient interaction instead yes. of making it an either or problem, either it's something to do with the patient, which it well may be, or something only to do with the clinic, that it's really a contextual situation in which you have to look at the patient in the context of the clinic and that whole interaction. So, so in, as your work went forward, can you talk a little bit about how did your thinking evolve around patient retention and the factors that maybe made it up or could help us understand it? Absolutely, and that, you know, I have to really credit my uh, K-23 award through the NIH and ICHD um, that gave me time to sort of go down some wormholes. Um, you know, I, my, my wife wants to ban Wikipedia from all my um, computers, phone, just because I can go down <laughs> such wormholes. And the K-23 allowed me to do that academically. So I recommend that for anyone that's a Wikipedia addict. Is, um, and that's actually what I did. And I came across a, a model, uh, Michael Rapoff, who I believe was in Kansas. And he had this model for adherence to pediatric medical regimens. And it was sort of calling attention to the fact that, especially in um, issues of chronic illness with kids, where there is um, a lot going on, especially in something like weight management, where you're dealing with behavioral treatment, you're dealing with patient education, you're dealing with medical comorbidities. It's very complex. And he divided, and this was from years of work of his and others, and divided it into sort of three categories or domains, which really helps me because then I can sort of lump my thinking into those three areas. And it really spoke to me of um, aspects of the disease and obesity is a unique disease. Um, it's symptomatology can be somewhat unique. Yes, some of our patients do have physical symptoms related to their weight. Others don't. Some who have really high cholesterol, they don't feel that high cholesterol at a, at a childhood age. Some of the comorbidities or some of the symptoms associated with obesity are more um, uh, emotional, you know, teasing, self-esteem, things like that. So the disease of obesity is quite unique. Then the other category is treatment. The treatment's unique, just like I said, it's frequent follow-up, it's long-term. It's, it's um, not seeing immediate results oftentimes. It involves multidisciplinary teams often located further from, um, from where the patient lives. And then the final one was child and family. Um, and with all of us that work in pediatric obesity, and, and here's my first Wikipedia wormhole, I'm gonna go down with this, um, especially with the child and family, I felt like a lot of the work, even though we know a lot about the family-based treatment, of pediatric obesity. What does that mean? So again, that took me down another wormhole to go back to some of the original research with Epstein way back into the 80s um, with, I guess I call him one of my minor heroes after you and Sarah Barlow is uh, Kelly Brownell and really looking at that early research and what was considered family and what I'd really drove down to. And, and I'm talking of getting, you know, PDFs and, you know, eight font articles trying to read what's going on there. And a lot, oftentimes it was including the parents. And I remember thinking um, something, I feel like something's missing when we talk about family-based obesity treatment. So that led me then down another wormhole of, are we truly approaching families? You know, and, and I would believe, and, th and this is a bias of mine, that I think overall, a lot of our history, um, not that it's wrong, but we're including a and we're calling the family. Um, and as any parent knows, when you take your child to uh, a well child check, it's typically gonna be 
one of the parents and the child, because oftentimes there's another pair working or it might just be a single parent household. Um, and so you're seeing a representative of that family um, that is reflecting what is going on at home. And we don't really know what's going on. So that led me to a year-long uh, wormhole working with uh, Cheryl Beeler at UNC Greensboro, which actually has one of the top fam human development family studies program. Lesson number one, human development family studies is a whole discipline I didn't really know existed. That um, <laughs> sort of grew from the old-fashioned home economics, but then really delved deeper um, to beyond that to include psychology, sociology, human development. So I spent a whole year essentially studying family theories um, and really became steeped in what's called family systems theory. And I, and, and we're speaking more of that now, um, because of me by any means, but we're speaking more of that now within pediatric and pediatric obesity world. Um, and, and I think it would have greater uptake if we had a nice cute model for family systems theory, but family systems theory is so complex itself and reflects the complexities of families, it doesn't fit into a nice model, but it can be something that I think having that in the background of when you approach families to realize um, the research I'm doing now with several different colleagues is the idea of family dynamics. If we want the health behaviors of a child and of a parent to change, you have to consider the context of the family. And whereas you may not change that entire family dynamics, we're not family therapists as pediatricians, you do have to take into account. And the analogy that I always use, and I'll shut down this wormhole pretty quickly, is, um, we, you know, we can't control the weather, but I check the weather every day before I leave the house. I need a raincoat, an umbrella, if I need to wear a sweater or a jacket. We need to know the weather in which that family lives in their own home if we want to impact the way that they live their life. So I'll, I'll stop those wormholes now. You're touching so many things that, that uh, are important. And when we think about the family system, I think years ago we started uh, making family genograms in our clinic where we would diagram literally and uh, instead of the diseases we would we would put the traditional circles and squares and connect people by the kinds of relationships they had and what was going on in the family and um you know it quickly becomes apparent that you're shifting a system around that child if if you're really going to get something to stick and to work for that kid and i i couldn't agree with you more so how does how then did thinking about family systems and that family and shifting that, how does that then tie back into your thinking on retention? Exactly. Um, and, and actually doing that genogram, I think, is a great tool that someone who's new to this or starting to try to, okay, how can I dive deeper into the family? I think that's a great way to do it. And oftentimes I present it as, hey, I want to get to know a little bit more about your family. Um, I oftentimes teach medical students um, the, a great entree to know more about the family is to ask, you know, in addition to tell me who all's in the family, ask if the parents work outside the home, and then ask where they live. Um, you know, I live in an area that is not population dense. You know, we, we have a very spread out population and it can give you a great insight. And, and it shows, I think sometimes it can build up some comfort to get a vision into what's going on with the family. And so I think sometimes asking some more questions um, about who in the family, who else in the family um, has struggles with weight, who's in the family is interested in also making changes or participate or have being a full participant, even if they can't come to clinic. And sometimes that opens up a ton that you weren't expecting. Oh, 
Dad has an issue with his weight. Um, he's been a chronic yo-yo dieter. He's done with it. You know, he's not going to have anything to do with this. And that's like, wow, well, that's going to be a barrier or, you know, I hate to really label one of the parents as a barrier, but that tells you, hey, this is something that we need to take into account in doing this. Because let's say they've been attending your program for a while and, you know, I'm just picking on the dad. Maybe this dad doesn't see change going on. That's suddenly going to be some pressure for that child, you know, maybe that they don't need to keep participating. If there's co-pays associated with the visits and, um, you know, that might be pressure from one of the parents to say, hey, listen, this is not worth the money that you're paying to do that. And that's going to be some increased pressure with it. When it comes to the idea of retention, um, it gives you the idea of not only assessing appropriate outcome expectations with the parent and the child that are in the clinic, but also taking into account other people in the family. So I think, I think giving you some insight, um, it gives you an understanding of what changes are going on or not going on at the home. Um, I, I think that can give you a better relationship with the family, which helps with retention, which we know is very important, both from qualitative and quantitative work that I've done and others have done. It's building up that immediate relationship, building up that comfort, um, helps with keeping uh, patients um, within clinic. Can also give you the time, um, it's time for a timeout. You know, that's one thing that understanding that retention and participation is not a yes or no outcome. Lots of patients drop out for a while or quit coming for a while and then they re-engage. And so one thing with retention is understand and expect some re-engagement um, and, and leaving that door open. You know, so one thing that we stopped doing about 10 years ago was sending this sort of very official letter of, you've missed three visits, we're now disenrolling you, you know, um, unenrolling you from the program. Um, you know, we, we do something a little nicer. We're always willing to see you back. And we have had families that have been off and on with us for two to three years, and then something clicks. Um, you know, understanding the dynamics of the family, other people in the family. So I just, it gives you a little bit more of a understanding of the family and appreciation of where they are. The relationships helps with attention as well as being able to know when you need to maybe call a break and leave the door open to them again. So Joe, you're making me think of patients that I would see once or twice, and then they would, I also never sent them the demanding letter, like we're gonna let you go. I see them once or twice, and I've had patients come in two years later and say, I'm ready now. Like I'm ready now, after that one or two visit experience. And so what I began to think is, you're forging a link in the chain. If you have a good visit with your family and your patient, you leave the door open, you're, you're, you're try, understanding their situation, that forges a link in the relationship chain. Now, they may not forge the second link for, an, you know, maybe a year, but you, you forge those links and, and gradually um, you make it easier for them to engage because they have had a positive experience with you, you know, and um, it's, so, it's, it's so incredibly important what you said about relationships. But tell me something about managing expectations of families, because lots of families come into clinic and they, they have certainly ideas about what they'd like to accomplish and in what time frame. How, how does that play into to your thinking about retention and, and their own expectations? Yes, because with, uh, you know, most of the research out there in the end, especially, um, you know, when you look at the, you know, look holistically at the idea of retention and dropout and things like that, 
so much of satisfaction and dissatisfaction still comes to a lack of outcomes. Um, and so, you know, one thing is to oftentimes note that this is going to be a fluid process with your child growing. So it's a normal conversation we all have. Your child's growing, don't expect pounds coming off a scale. You got to take into account, you know, BMI and things like that. So sort of skipping past that argument, um, you, you know, we talk about families, we don't want to focus on weight as an outcome. So what we do want to do is focus on the behaviors that then lead to it. And I think a lot of us are, are, have been doing that for decades is, hey, a watch pot never boils. We need to focus on the, the, the behaviors that are going to impact the weight long term. So, and, and I'll have to credit my friends Ashley Skinner and um, Sarah Armstrong over at Duke. They had written a commentary on this one time, um, which I love, I absolutely love it. They said, you know, we talk about that as an outcome. But still, our primary outcomes oftentimes in treatment are going to be weight and, you know, improvement comorbidities, which usually in our setting comes down to improvement in laboratory studies. So we spend a lot of time on one hand saying we need to focus on the behaviors, but then our primary outcomes are the weight. So one thing that we've instituted, which we have found families have really enjoyed, is actually um, trying to query some of the behaviors that we're interested in changing. And when it comes to my program, which is obviously very family focused in a lot of behaviors, you know, we look at changes in, I don't want to say parenting type, but changes in some parenting behaviors around feeding. Can we move a parent from a restrictive pressuring feeding approach to more of an authoritative uh, parenting approach when it comes to food? Um, we want families to spend more active time together. So we ask sort of pre and post surveys around that. And so we begin to focus some of our outcome studies on the behaviors that we want to see. So when we see a family in follow-up, um, that's oftentimes what we'll spend some time saying, especially if we don't see a lot of weight changes yet, we'll bring that up to them. But hey, look at all these behaviors that have changed. We've not seen the numbers change on a scale yet, but look at these behaviors that change. Um, you know, a big, I remember a big uh, sort of an editorial came out in one of the uh, large journals about how, you know, just focusing on sugar sweetened beverages weren't seeing an impact on the weight. And I think the more you focus on one behavior, um, the, the less you are likely to see a, a, a link between that behavior and weight because there's so many other behaviors that go into it. Um, and so, you know, we want families to really focus on a lot of the be positive behaviors that they're changing. And one thing that we see, and I think others have seen it too, is you start seeing an improvement. There's a very few studies looking at some improvement in family dynamics and relationships, but definitely improvement in the child quality of life. So I do think um, we want families to look holistically at their behaviors. Well, I think some of our outcomes need to look holistically. Um, now that can be problematic, and I'll leave it at this, that um, sometimes we can be undone by our colleagues. If they're only looking at what the weight on that scale is today, it can undo a lot of the positive changes. We all have that same goal of improving that child's weight and improving their health, but there's so many other improvements that we need um, to make. We know that if kids don't feel well, they don't do well. That's sort of parenting 101. And so we need to, we don't need to, and I'm not saying that we need to pump these kids up and families up to make them feel good if they're not making changes, but we really need to focus on the changes in that child's quality of life. Cause that's what we're here for as caregivers is to improve that child's well-being. Well -being. It might take time actually improve that weight, but we need to, we need to think more holistically about it. Child is still the whole child. They have obesity, but they still are a whole child with the, a child has to go to school, have good peer relationships, um, 
feel good about uh, their, their growing in what they're learning and their skills. And, um, and thinking about what we've talked about in terms of uh, uh, retention, uh, and just sort of recapping in my mind what we've been saying, it's, you know, that relationship between us and our patients is so important. That's the glue that holds this together. And then our, our ability to understand the context of the patient, where's that patient living, what factors are impinging upon their lifestyle, their emotional health, their schoolhouse, because that tells us a little bit about what, where we need to start and what kind of changes we need to make. And then um, what, what is that family system all about? Because in the end, we're trying to move the family system from a, from, uh, toward better health behaviors, toward a system that engages in better health. And setting those expectations so the family knows what we're doing, how we're trying to move them with positive health behaviors. And so I think that um, when you forge that kind of relationship and you have that kind of communication, I think then the family begins to understand better what this is all about for them, what, yeah. what this picture looks like for them. And it's not the scale, right? Yeah, there, this is my tearjerker story is um, we had a, a teenage girl um, and her mother come um, for the child's weight. And, um, you know, it, it's almost like going back to third year medical school, pay attention to body language. And I remember they could hardly speak to each other. I mean, they even sort of sat with their backs almost against each other. Whereas, you know, some families you see and they sort of, you know, you ask the child a question and they look to their mom or their dad and, you know, no, no, come on, you can answer me. This one was the exact opposite. And, you know, we picked up on it quickly. And so I think one thing um, that we found very valuable, and I think you know, a lot of programs do it, but um, sometimes we forget to is, you know, except for the younger kids, spend a little bit of time away with the child by themselves and the parent by themselves. Um, um, sometimes that frees a parent up to talk. Um, oftentimes, though, it can actually prevent more damage because we're asking some very probing questions about weight and health and habits. And that child can walk away from that visit feeling very criticized. And so that's one thing that we know when it comes down to retention, teenagers tend to drop out, teenagers and their families tend to drop out at a higher rate than those of younger kids. Because if your teenager doesn't wanna go to a clinic, you're not gonna drag them there. And so I, just, I think, whereas a younger child may not know the difference. So I just, I think that's a, can be a very important thing for teenagers. So we make a big point of spending some time separately to sort of to delve into that. And what we found with this, this family was a lot of tension between that mom and that child. That mom was putting a ton of pressure on that child. That child did want to change some weight, but was reacting to the pressure that she was receiving. So we spent six months working with this family, just trying to prepare, repair that relationship. And, and I think that's always a struggle with uh, programs. At what point do we refer out for therapy versus try to address in? And with this family, I think we always felt like we were about to make that step to work on health behaviors, but it kept coming back around to their relationship. Well, after six months, we didn't really address a lot of health behaviors, but guess what? That child had actually lost weight and improved her weight status. And here's a tearjerker part. We said, what did you, know, what, what did you do? This is, this is good. You changed a lot, you know, you changed behaviors, but we never really talked about that. And the child said, you guys cared for us. You showed interest in us to sort of help me and my mom. And that was sort of all that was said. And it was just really sort of repairing that relationship. And the child said, we knew what we needed to do. We couldn't get on the same page to do it. 
And so them being able to communicate better led them to start making changes right and left, which then showed an improvement in their waste status. So that's not every family, that's not gonna work for everyone, but it's a powerful story that sometimes we don't need, we can't ignore the elephant in the room if we're expecting the family to function better. If that, if that engine isn't tuned very well, they're not gonna make, they're not gonna drive very far. So we know without the family and their ability to, to work together, we can do everything we can do in clinic, but if they go home and they can't work together to achieve those goals, we're not gonna see the, the, the change that we wanna see. So checking in with the health of the family system and those relationships is really a key component of, of what we're trying to do. And we're not family therapists, but I think that we, we do have an influence on um, modeling how we care about each member of the family, modeling communication. Um, sometimes we would role play in clinic and I would, uh, I remember an eight year old boy and he was mouthing off at his mother. And I said to him, how, how come you're talking like that to your mom? And he said, well, that's how the kids on TV talk. And then I realized he was learning how to talk to his parents from the television and we began to model different ways of speaking together with his mother and him. And once we did that, then communication became possible between mm -hmm. our, our little guy and his mom. So um, I, I couldn't uh, endorse that more of just checking in with the relationship and modeling in your own caring and your own communication, positive aspects of that relationality that, that you wanna that you wanna get. So Joey, we're about to wrap up and I just wanted to ask if there's anything you wanted to just say, um, a take home point or a point maybe we didn't get to, to, to our audience today. Yeah, I think with the idea of um, retention and the treatment that we approach, um, and I think this is what a lot of people do, but I think sometimes with busy clinics, space limitations, um, sometimes, and, and I'm speaking from experience that we get off track a little bit, and, and I learned this in my study of human development family studies is that, you know, half of that field is human development, which we know a lot about. Um, but I think oftentimes we think of development with the younger children and meeting their milestones. So what we like to do and what we, we like to teach people is, you know, throw back to PJ stages of development. And so the simplistic way that we do it is we sort of lump it in the kids seven and younger, eight to 12 to 13, and then our adolescents. And again, that's very broad and differs a lot by the child's personality and own developmental status. Um, and so one thing that we think helps a lot with retention and dividing in those three groups is the children seven and younger, we know that's all. And a lot of the literature actually supports kids, even that eight to 12, eight to 13 range. Um, and the whole field of parents as exclusive agents of change, we know that we can be just as effective if we're mostly having the parents come to those visits. That makes a lot life a lot easier for families if they're not having to take their kids out of school to then bring them to a clinic visit. Um, and so we have a lot of our follow-up visits that we do without the children. And then the teenagers, we kind of go old school adolescent medicine with that. We make sure that we spend time by ourselves with the, with the, with the adolescent as well as with the parent to do what we call parallel treatment that, you know, we're letting the child drive and choose behaviors and makes decisions that they want to focus on and make sure that we can help the parent know the best way to support them. And so I think these are a lot of things that we know 
But again, me and my simple mindset, I've got to sort of lump it in groups. And we find that as a very useful way to approach treatment. So we think that helps with retention because parents, it even makes them miss less work because they don't have to leave work, pick up the child, come to clinic, take the child back to school and then go back to work. They can come directly from work. Now on telemed days, we can do directly just with that parent oftentimes. Um, the adolescence and some of the work that we've done and those that stayed in and dropped out is a lot of the um, parents and the adolescents are saying, I'm in this room, a group visit, an exercise class with these little kids, and they're adolescents. They're wanting to be grown-ups. And so we, we make sure that adolescents feel they're in a separate type of treatment program, um, even though it's not that separate, that we're really focused on them as different providers. So we, we found those things have, off, have helped a lot with, as far as families um, of keeping them plugged into the treatment. And lastly, like I mentioned, understand that, um, uh, you know, we even try to get away, even though my whole professional career has been focused on attrition, we kind of get away from that idea, idea of dropout, knowing participation wax and wanes and being able to call them back. Because back to developmental theory, that 12-year-old that maybe wasn't having some success due to a multitude of reasons, suddenly they're a 14 or 15-year-old, they're more mature, they had a good experience in your program, they didn't feel blamed and shamed, and suddenly they take off. I cannot tell you how many times in the past decade that we had families, you know, some, and I meant, you know, some drop out, they want anything to do us again, doesn't feel that they had success, but then suddenly that teenager, the parents can turn into a supportive role and that teen and their increasing autonomy is wanting to take on some of this change themselves. I just, I've seen remarkable stories of no success, no success, no success. And then if you, if you keep on good terms with that family, keep on good terms with that child, they don't feel blamed and shamed or fired from your clinic and then suddenly they start to take off with it. It's really, it's really miraculous. Well, Joey, that really describes my view of longitudinal care. You know, the caring presence that you have for your patients as they navigate this journey of, of really uh, dealing with their, their lifestyle and their lifestyle change and their obesity. So, I just wanted to thank you so much for giving your time today for this podcast. Uh, you, you have a wealth of uh, knowledge and wisdom, and uh, I think we all benefited today from hearing about that. So thank you very much, Joey. Well, thank you, Sandy. It's great to see you, and thanks for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you for listening to another episode of Conversations About Care. Visit our website to find this episode and more, along with relevant resources as well as episode transcripts. We'd also like to invite you to take a brief survey on how we can continue to improve our show. Thank you for tuning in. The views, information, resources, or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations, taking into account individual circumstances, may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care from the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast, 
without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.